Hello, and welcome to Three Kino. I'm Al. And I'm Pro. And we will, as always, be talking about three films. Uh, the first one will be from pre-1960. The next one will be from pre-1990. And the next one will be after that. That is right. Yep. So what is the first film today? The first film is Animal Crackers, 1931, um, which is a Marx Brothers film. The Marx Brothers descend on the house of Mrs. Ritter, Ritter House. And um, Groucho is uh, an explorer from Africa. And uh, his brother is a professor. And his other brother is Italian, and they basically just—they bas there isn't a huge storyline I can point to. I'm not gonna lie. This is true. Um, in synopsis, you often get the storyline of where they've um, a, a painting has been stolen. Right. But yeah, it makes up about you know 20, 20 minutes of storyline overall. Yeah. It yeah. ends with that storyline. It's very thin, right? It's 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 thin in in storyline sense. Yeah. yeah. So the, it's just the backdrop for what these characters get up to. Right. Yeah, showcasing the Marx Brothers in their vaudeville style to some extent, really. Mm. But yeah, let's just dive in. And um, what do you think about visuals? Okay, so it's a very early early movie, 1930, mm -hmm. so obviously black and white. Yep. Um, the, the version I saw, which I think was taken from the Blu-ray, or, yeah, I think the high-def release of the film, it actually looked pretty good, considering mm -hmm. its age. The, yeah, it was, in, it was in good condition. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's scratches and stuff on the film, but generally pretty good. Um, so this, uh, apparently this movie was based on Broadway, yeah, I heard that, yeah. 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 You can kind of tell. So a lot of the actors, are their bodies are like tilted towards the camera, mm -hmm. even though they're talking to someone to their side, mm -hmm. in such a way that they're, they're like kind of tilted towards their audience, as, as you would be in, a, in one of these kind of theatre performances. Right. Yeah, the, stat the cameras, well, it's not static all the time, but there's quite a fair amount of static camera. Yes. And... Like composition-wise, there's generally something in the middle of the frame that the camera's focusing on, mm. and that's it. And it usually will be like one or two, or two, usually two or more characters in the middle of the frame having a conversation, and that's about in terms of like camera work. Yeah, I think I mean considering it's nineteen thirties, you can't really expect much more from from it. I guess. Yeah. Some of the, but the, uh, the initial musical piece, the camera moves, is moving. Right. When they're, they're coming in. Um, the composition is, is, is quite cool. Yeah. Like they're, they're in the middle. The guy's <laughs> in the middle, he's singing, they're moving forward, things are expanding. Right, right. Um, yeah. It's, but, I mean, I guess the, more of the point is the subjects and what they're doing. Yes. Right, so... The Marx Brothers are definitely about visual comedy, mm. um, but it you know you could you could be largely as easily done on the stage. Right. Nothing right. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Just that's what's happening. So, what did you think about their their visual comedy? 
Um, so we've previously done a Charlie Chaplin movie, right. which is also like a very visual comedy based mm-hmm. kind of film. Mm-hmm. And this is like that in some respects. Yes. But I, I don't know. The, I guess for me, not being like a film historian or anything, for a movie of this age to grab me, it has to be a certain kind of movie. Right. So like a narrative-focused, usually um, character-focused movie. Whereas this one, there's a lot of jokes. Yep. Like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure which Marx Brothers which character, but the the one who plays the Captain Spaulding? Right. That's uh, Groucho. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's very fast-talking. Very fast-talking. Joke after joke after joke. Right. There's a lot of that, like, right. facial... Like his eyebrows are like moving with his words and he's making funny faces. And right. Not particularly my up my alley, so to speak. How about you? Um I do I do like the I do like the, the physical physical comedy element of it. Mm. Um uh, the the fight the fighting is is, is very funny. You know, mm. they they've got that down. And you can see how like it was the it was kind of an antecedent of is that the right word? Of later, later physical comedy, like even going as far as like, like maybe a TV show Bottom or something like that. The, mm. That kind of fighting. Um, the poker, they're playing, no, they're not playing poker, right? They're playing a, they're playing bridge. a bridge, bridge, right. Again, there's like the, the those are the visuals. You're focusing on like very specific small things, but these these right. things could just as easily have been done on the stage. That's the thing. That's why. That's why it doesn't fit as well into the arguably into film. Right. Yep. I agree with that because I think from modern films we we expect certain things from film. Yeah. We expect it to be able to like tell us a story that can only be told through this kind of medium. Right. Right. Whereas just as you said, this film being so close to like Broadway as it is, it feels like it could ju- just as well be told on a, on the, on a stage with live actors. Right. Which I mean do- doesn't entirely detract from it. I'm not I'm not trying to say it does detract from mm. it, but it doesn't. Mm. There's not necessarily that much to talk about apart from the visual comedy, which is is which is you know is 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 great and has been used and copied right. a lot. You know you can see that. Um, audio. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm not a fan of musicals, mm-hmm. and when I started this movie, there were it several. Starts, it starts very much like a musical. It yeah, feels there like were that, several it? scenes where like characters are talking to each other in song, mm-hmm. and that grinds my gears. <laughs> so going into this, my expectations were kind of low. Right. But to be fair, in the mid part of the movie, it does kind of get away from that. To some extent, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think generally audio-wise, it was fine. Um, you got that like slight hissing that you get from old, old prints of this kind, right. but dialogue was clear. Mm-hmm. No complaints really, but nothing that stood out. How about you? I think well, that's it. You have to be a f- like, you have to be a fan of of um, watching people playing the piano, for example. Right. Right, that's um, 
But that's it. Those those kind of elements feel very much like they're from the stage era, or mm. probably the vaudeville era. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. It is. It is insane watching Chico play the piano, uh, and Harpo playing the harp. That's what he plays. Right. But it, it doesn't. It does feel like something very much from another age, doesn't it? You know. Yeah. So there's something I didn't mention on the visuals, but something that does bear mentioning is even though like most of the film feels of a certain era. The I think you said his name was Groucho. Mm-hmm. Groucho Marx, who yes. plays Spalding. Yes. He has several scenes in the movie that where he like breaks the fourth wall right. and starts talking to the audience, like behind the camera. Like there's one scene where he's talking to these two ladies and then he like just tells them to be quiet for a moment and then he steps forward towards the camera. And they kind of freeze. <laughs> I mean they aren't really frozen, you can tell like the, the frame is, is still moving, like you can, they're slightly moving, but the, the characters are kind of frozen. Mm-hmm. And then he's directly addressing the audience. That's, that's kind of like a modern, like a lot of even contemporary mu- movies like, uh, what's it called? Deadpool. Right. Like one of the special things about that movie is the way he breaks the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And this was doing it back in 1930. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, obviously, like there's something which has definitely continued into the modern era. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that was another point about that. Like, it, it, the whole film has, um, I guess we're going to move on a bit to maybe more observations right. on, on that on that one. The whole film has that uh, very surreal feeling to it. Mm. Um, and, was it? I think it was, Gaudi? Gau, Gau, anyway, <laughs> they were they they were lauded for their surrealism. Okay. Because it is surreal. Like the guys sitting there talking, so let's just let's have a break. I'm just right, right. talk to these guys over here. Break the fourth wall. Um. So yeah. I love the humours like that as well. Like he's mm. he's talking to this lady about how he's in love with her, and then this is the Groucho marks the sporting, mm-hmm. and then this uh, this other lady comes from behind, and then he suddenly decides on the spot that he wants to marry both of them. And then one of them's like, uh, isn't that a polygamy? And then, I don't know, it's, it's just a very strange conversation, but the movie's like littered with these. Like, it's just him being him, and then, yeah. and it's, that isn't, is that Mrs. Ritterhouse? Is that like the lady I of the house? I think she's one of the two. Because she plays it so straight, like, like if, if anyone was behaving in the manner he was behaving in, you would just you'd have to like you'd have to just get away from them wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but she's she just stands there and kind of stoically takes it. <laughs> like numerous comments about her age and her looks <laughs> at... But it's it's funny. Like it's very funny that stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe. But um the other point about that is is with Groucho Marx is is comedy is it's so relentless. Like the jokes just keep Keep coming and coming and yes. coming. It doesn't really give any chance for anything to breathe. I thought. I know what you mean. Is that let's say you're kind of you've got like it's hard. You you are laughing, but it's kind of a little bit little bit there. It's a bit painful. And um, he even addresses that in one of his fourth wall breaks. He he makes a joke and then he's like he, he turns to the camera. It's like well they can't all be funny. It's like <laughs> you know what you're right. <laughs> yeah you're right. A lot of them aren't funny. But at least you know that. <laughs> But that's it, isn't it? Like, but there's that that the other thing is that there's that build up of the jokes, hmm. of like 
that's not very funny. Oh, that that's not funny. And then oh, that was funny. And oh, and that was not funny. But I'm still laughing. Yeah. And that um, was definitely. I mean, there's been many people who've have used that kind of humour, but Mel Brooks uh-huh. definitely. You can see that that kind of humour in Mel Brooks films. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I would. Uh, any any other further comments? <laughs> Um, no, I think you're right. It's definitely been influential. You, in that kind of like fast-talking joke style, even in like movies like Rush Hour, like I, I, whether it's uh, directly applicable or not, you can see similarities in the, the way they do humour there mm. with certain characters and how they speak. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it, it probably has been pretty influential. Yeah, no. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. Um, final thoughts? Final thoughts. Yeah, it was a different age. It was a different age of film. Mm. Yeah. A lot of stuff that wouldn't necessarily play Harpo's treatment of women. Yeah, he's kind of a, a sex pest. Sex he? pest. And then he still kind of played off as... Like the police officer at the end calls him like... A young man, like he's <laughs> like it's just a tyke. Different, different age, different age. Yeah, he's he's, he's got a very strange character. Marks out of ten. Marks out of ten. For me, I've seen other few other Mark Brothers films, and I didn't like this one as much as some of the other ones. Um, okay. But there was definitely some good set pieces in it. Um, so I'd, I'd still gonna go probably about six point five. Not it's not that high. Not a high score for me. Okay. How about you? Um, so in a way, I kind of see myself as like a... Because, as I said before, I'm not a film historian. So for a film of this age to grab me, it has to be doing something kind of modern. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to have like a very narrative focus or a character focus. And this doesn't do it. Mm. So it doesn't pass my kind of benchmark as a watchable f- if, if you're into modern movies and not so much old then this isn't one of those that will transcend that barrier mm. for me anyway mm. whereas some of the previous ones we've seen have so for me this is pretty I'm, I'm probably not going to watch it again um, maybe a four really okay that's quite low yeah yeah I'd say I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily like advise anyone for this to be the first Marx Brothers films they they ever watched. To be honest, mm. um, I'd I'd probably advise them to see like Monkey Business, something like that. I remember that being a funnier, funnier one. But anyway, yeah, fair comments, fair comments. Okay, for the next one, the next one is To Live and Die in L.A. nineteen eighty five. What's it about? It's a good title. <laughs> it's a good title, isn't it? It's is a good title. It's a good movie. Good we question. See. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Uh, it's about... Uh, they are, in fact, secret, secret service, secret service agents investigating a forger, money forger, um, embodied by Rick Masters, Anyway, he's a, he's an artist and and also a forger and also like a master criminal. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> played by a young Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe, yeah. And we got this um, 
agent who's kind of on the edge. He's a thrill seeker. Like he, he'll, he'll, he'll take risks. Um, and he's hunting him. And that's the setup. Because he kills his partner. That's right. To add that part. Yeah, kills his partner. Okay. Right. Yeah. Visually, mm. what did you think? But visually, I think this film's um, got a lot of redeeming features, actually. Um, <laughs> could be some negativity in the redeeming feature concept. <laughs> but uh, I, I really, I do think, I like the fight scenes in it, particularly. Mm. Uh, I, did, I did enjoy those scenes. And the action scenes are also uh, very good. And uh, the, the fight sequences had to have a kind of martial artsy feel about them. And so I checked into that, and the the fight sequence coordinator was Pat E. Johnson, mm. who uh, was the fight. Well, was a, did the fight and did trained um, Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid. All oh, right, nice. So yeah, it's got it's got a good good pedigree for the uh, the fight sequences. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not necessarily an action film, but the mm. action sequences are well done. Right. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that stuff is, is, is very entertaining. Um, the car chase scene, there's a, there's a big car chase scene after they've, like, they've done a robbery. They've literally done a robbery. Like, the police officers um, have stolen money because they can't, they can't get money from the police department for the buy of this um, counterfeit money. And so they're doing a robbery, and there's a, there's a, a car scene in Suze where they're being chased by the FBI. That scene was was pretty damn good. I don't think I've seen a car chase that good in a while. Even yeah. though you had a few problems with it. <laughs> I think, visually, I think, yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was very exciting, entertaining. But it's one of those, it's more a narrative problem. Mm -hmm. So these two uh, Secret Service agents rob an undercover FBI agent, right. not knowing that he was an undercover FBI agent. And then they're chased by other undercover FBI agents and I'm fine with that that mm. makes sense mm. but then these guys like they get away they get into their car and they drive away mm. but then it turns out that all along the highway are these FBI undercover agents that just knew that this robbery was going to happen and that these cops were going to come this way yeah it seems like it doesn't and there's like people standing on the sides of the road like, for like seemingly miles waiting for these guys and like taking shots at their cars how are these guys here? How did they know that this was going to happen? How did they know this is the car? There's no GPS. There's yeah. no Google Maps. It's Helicopter. <laughs> well, they didn't show it in the film. <laughs> if they don't show it in the film, it doesn't count. But, I mean, we're on visual, so that, that, that shouldn't count as a negative. Visually, it was exciting. True. Did you notice there was that one shot where, like, you can see his, his face and then... It's kind of there's a, the camera does a swing, so it's like they've mounted the camera on the front of the bonnet, and then it swings round to 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 see the front of the car. Like I hadn't seen like front ah. front facing. Yeah, I hadn't seen a shot like that. It was only one shot. It's a very small shot, but I hadn't seen a shot like that. It was it was good. It really did get you into the action. So mm. you're like you're seeing his face, and then it swings, and then it's like you're seeing what he's seeing. I think I recall that. Yeah. Yeah, it's got, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I don't think I've I don't think I've seen one like that very often. And I'm I'm always a big fan of these like practical action sequences. Mm. Like this guy's like they're driving along the wrong side of the road for a lot of this. Right. Like against incoming traffic, 
And yes, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, that's the good stuff, I think. Any other visuals? Um, okay, so when the film starts, there are like these scenes that they're like being, they've been cut into the movie of these performers. Mm-hmm. They're like dance performers or something. They're wearing this uh, makeup yeah. and... Yeah. Like the, the film opens with like a shot of these dancers for seemingly no reason. Like they, they kind of come into the movie at some point, but I think it's more to like create a kind of atmosphere. I mean, it's directed by William Friedkin, who did many other good films, including The Exorcist. And he's very competent with his, with his editing, I think. And in this film, like when I saw it, it got me interested. I was like, wow, what's happening here? Who are these guys? And what part do they play? Mm. But not much. Right. And it was. It seemed more to be like some a kind of stylistic choice that he's made to yeah. build up an atmosphere of L.A. I guess L.A. is being like a kind of arts town. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't really understand it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think I think there's, there's some confusion going on here. Like, there's not. It's not as cogently told. Mm. On a number of levels, but yeah, visually speaking as well. What about audio? Mm, yeah, like yeah, so like the again the gunfight scenes. They were they were quite loud, quite good, quite big. <laughs> <laughs> loud and big. <laughs> that means good. That means good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the the music. We talked about the music a bit. Um, it's not. It's not particularly. It's not standout. It's, right. it's very much of the time. I don't know. Which was a bit disappointing because. Yeah. I mean, we've done some movies from this kind of time, but like Thief was mm-hmm. in the last podcast, I think. Yeah. And for a lot of these '80s soundtracks have soundtracks have really damn good soundtracks. Right. And Thief had damn good one. Right. And this has a kind of similar like. You notice the synths and a lot of the instruments that they used for these kinds of movies, but this was a more generic version of that. Right. I didn't want to go home and listen to this soundtrack afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But you know, it was um, a feature of the film. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I don't know. There's not much to say on that point at yeah. the moment. Any observations? Themes. Um, so the main character, yeah, is not well to me anyway. It's not a very likable character. No. So right in the beginning, it's him and his uh, near retirement age partner, and his partner seems like a really cool guy. He's got this really badass moustache and and hat, and he it seems like a really like he's got that charismatic face. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this would be good, seeing these two guys together. And then the guy dies mm. in a very, you get like this foreshadowing from a mile away. And then when he, when the old guy dies, and we're just left with this young, un, or to me, uncharismatic, kind of a dick, unlikable protagonist, yeah. who we're supposed to be behind. For That's it, you're supposed film. to buy into it, I think, aren't you? Yeah, I think you're supposed to buy into his kind of like on the edge. Yeah, cool. 
Like another thing, the film opens in a very strange way. So it opens with a terrorist attack. Right. In a hotel. Which, right. Which makes sense that they're secret service. service yeah. Because they're protecting, I think, a politician or something. Right. And there's, like, Iranian terrorist blows himself up. Mm. And you kind of see, like, his kind of risk-loving nature where he, like, chases this guy to the roof. Mm. And then his partner's, like, climbing up the building from the side to, like, pull this guy off the roof before he blows himself off. Blows himself up. So it kind of fits his character, but I don't know, he's just not likeable. Yeah, because his partner's a bit shaken up, but he's not, is he? Yeah. He's like, here, let's go get a drink. And he's just rude to, like, every everyone else in the film, including the, uh, his new partner who's, like, trying to help him. And he right. just... The second he disagrees with him, he just starts shouting at him, calls him a dick and a traitor and... Yeah. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in terms of observations, like, pretty much the same, yeah. Like, I... Th- um, you... It's become almost a bit uh, redundant, that cop on the edge. Mm. He's a little bit different in terms of being, like, very much sens- sensation-seeking... Um, like some, he, he drinks a lot. Um, he's but he's almost kind of like a psychopath, though, isn't he? That, that's yeah. the point. Like he's 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 on that level. Like right. he hasn't. He's got not, not for me. He's not particularly redeemable at all. Yeah, because he well, he gets the undercover FBI agent killed. Right. He then kills. Doesn't, doesn't care about that. Exactly. Either. He doesn't care about that. Then he kills, I think, a couple of undercover FBI agents who were sh- like shooting at them. And no remorse about that. Mm. Like, there's no point in the movie where he's looking back at what he's done and thinks, damn, what, what have I done? Which is weird, because so he gets a new partner, and he says, I'm going to take this guy down, the guy who killed his old partner, no matter the cost. Mm. And then his new partner says, oh, well, if that's what you want to do, why don't you just go up to this guy and shoot him? Right. And he chooses not to do that. Right. But then over the course of the movie, he does, like, way worse. He, like, kills a bunch of other people. Yeah. So if, I, I just didn't get it. Yeah, I didn't really get it either. It, yeah. I don't know. Andy's, like, exploiting this um, informant of his. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah. It's like, after having sex with her, she says something, she says something like a, I mean, she says something that upsets him, and then he says, "Oh no!" She asks him, uh, "If I stopped giving you information, what would you do?" And then he goes, "Oh, I'll just uh, have them revoke your parole." Right. He's just—he's a complete cunt, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then his partner becomes that at the end, which is another weird one. I, just, not... I didn't really get the story. I didn't get a lot of it. I just didn't understand what was going on. So throughout the movie, his partner's been like, oh, that's too bad, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not going to break the rules like this. And at the end, his partner's basically become him. Yeah. Without there being the character development to justify it, I thought. Yeah, no, that's it. But it's not, it's not a bad movie. It's not bad. I think we're railing on it. It's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's a movie that's had a lot of praise. And if you look at like the critical reception, it's pretty high. Yeah. And I'm wondering where that 91% Ron Tomatoes came from. (laughs) 
your taste is in your ass. <laughs> That's a direct quote from Eric Masters. It's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. Um, the third. No, wait. Points. Oh, five points. What would you give out of ten? Unrated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, probably about six. Six. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'll go with six. Yeah. It's like for me, five's average. Mm. And this, like you said, some of the action scenes that you're talking about before are good enough to justify it giving a six. I yeah. Think. That's for me, the redeemable feature is definitely the action and fighting and stuff. That's, that's, that's fun. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the last film. Last film. The best film. The Grand Budapest Hotel, 2014, directed by Wes Anderson. It is about new lobby boy Zero goes to the aid of his friend Gustav H, played by Rafe Fiennes, the concierge of the Grand Budapest Hotel, who has been falsely imprisoned after the suspicious death of a wealthy patron slash lover. Indeed. Okay, so this is a Wes Anderson film. Right. So visually... We already know going into it, before we even watch it, there's going to be a lot to talk about. He's a very visual director. Right. What did you think? Um, yeah, exactly. Like, it's almost a bit tiring in his, his visual style. And I don't mean that as, as in a negative way, per se. But you it's not just... some. You know, I think we're all used to standard Hollywood continuity editing. That means you can sit back and watch a film and you don't you don't notice cuts and everything. You don't really notice it per se. Right. This film you like very much notice it and it gives um the like the camera work, the the use of the camera, uh, gives it a lot of speed and it and it it does link to the story, which is what's so good about it really. Like it, it's not just for style. It mm. is definitely very much part of the story. Uh, but it, yeah, it can be a, it can be a bit tiring. That's one of the first points I'd like to make. Yeah. How about your visuals? First points. I can see I can see what you're saying. It's like in most films, like even in very well directed films, a camera shot is. It's like a means to tell the story, but it's not as important as other aspects of the story, mm. like the characters' performances and stuff. But in a Wes Anderson film, in particular this one. Everything in the shot seems to have been put there deliberately to tell part of the story. So I've, I think you have to concentrate a lot more, or you end, you end up concentrating a lot more on the little details in a movie like this than you would otherwise. And you can miss things, I find. Right. Quite so maybe multiple viewings might yeah. be necessary for this one. Yep. But yeah, I mean... For a start, you'll notice that the aspect ratio changes throughout the movie. So the film opens kind of modern day. So it's got like a, I think it's 16 by 9, or near, near, nearabouts anyway. It's like a full widescreen aspect. And then uh, I think the second shot of the movie goes slightly into the past. Mm. And then it changes to a if I recall correctly, I might be wrong, but I think it changes to a more widescreen, typical theatre aspect ratio. And then it goes further into the past, and then it changes to a 4 by 3 
I think it's either four by three or one by one. And the different time periods depicted in the film are separated by these aspect ratios. Right. Which I thought was very clever because you always know which part of the story is being told by that. Mm. What did you think about that? I, yeah, I, I did like it. Um, it definitely reinforces messages. Mm. That's one thing it does. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's about it, really. I mean, yeah, it was very, it was very clever. To, it was very clever. It was, mm. it was very interesting. Okay, another another aspect visually, I think, colour. Yes. Like, this is a very colourful film. Yep. There's a lot of, like, kind of pastel colours. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it... It's, so, I think we made a kind of similar comment for the uh, Life Aquatic as being very colourful. But this is that in a different way. Mm. Like, the colours are... It's hard to describe. There's a lot of pinks and salmon-y colour and... Mm. Yeah. I guess... I don't know. That's true. I, th- I think you're right about that. I think it's de- there's definitely a the- like a colour theme right. to the film, which is more on the pastel side. I guess that's... It's probably something to do with like the atmosphere they're trying to create for the Grand Budapest scenes. Yeah. Because the colour palette also does change from the old Grand Budapest to the modern yeah. scenes in the Grand Budapest. The 60s, it's like 60s, I think, the period, I think. For the what period... Third? Oh, the modern. Yeah, the yes, yeah, modern, yes. sorry, modern period. Right, right, right. And that, uh, that... The first thing that struck me when I first saw the first scene was it, it almost kind of looked a little bit like Shining. I don't think there was a very... Oh. I don't think there was a very big connection there. I don't think that was a very big connection. But it did look... But I think it's simply because it was set... Oh, not too far apart like mm. 70s 60s similar decor right at least uh, yeah no but yeah and I think in the old scenes the Grand Budapest is at its peak mm. so it's like this hotel has been like it's being cleaned and renovated and it's at, it's at it, yeah at its peak basically and then in the modern scenes it hasn't been in in much use for like a decade if not more yeah so it's kind of Slightly dilapidated and it looks old and things. Communisty. Yeah. It turned into a new one. Right. Yeah. And like one of the scenes takes place in like these, Arab, uh, was it, what are they called? I think the Arab, baths. Arab baths. Ra- not, Arabian not, baths. Something like that. <laughs> and then, one of the, I think the Jude Law's character remarks on how, how wonderful it looks, and then. Zero's character says, "Oh, it used to look a lot better, but this is this decor is too luxurious for contemporary tastes." Right, alluding to the the fact that it's probably the communist right run state now. Right, that's it. Like in, in the back, oh, there's probably more of no themes. No, let's move on. Let's move, move on. Yes. Stay. <laughs> Audio. Audio. <laughs> Ear. Has this has has Wes Anderson done the vo- the voiceover storyteller thing before? Um, because I, I I can't recall to be honest. Okay. I haven't seen. Uh, he doesn't do it in Life Aquatic. He doesn't do it in Darjeeling Limited. He doesn't do it in. Um, 
pity a little bit. I saw it. I saw Isle of Dogs quite recently. I can't mm. remember if there was a voiceover in that. I think there might have been. This one definitely does. Yes, right. this one he does. This one he does. <laughs> so you know, you know, but that was an interesting choice. It was a very specific. Is it like? Is it? Was that like evoking like the fairy tale nature of the story? Like this, they got the storyteller voice. Yeah, I mean, because when the film opens in the modern time, there's no, there's no uh, voiceover, and then when Jude Law meets the older Zero, oh yeah, and then Zero, and then he asks Zero to tell him about tell him his story basically. Zero That's when the voiceover starts, and then Zero's yeah. basically narrating his own life story. So in no, no, Jude Law also has a voiceover. Jude Law is also good. He does. He does. That's, yeah. that's true. That is true. He's not directly speaking to the camera. He's doing things within the camera whilst there's his voiceover. Right. It's like kind of his thought process. Right. Yeah. Well, I thought it was very effective. Anyway, it's yeah. very effective. I guess it's because Jude Law's a writer, mm. and Zero uh, other. Uh, F. Murray Abraham's the storyteller. Mm-hmm. So they're both kind of telling stories that warrants a voiceover, I guess. Right. Yeah, it was him. Well done, I thought. Yeah. But it's an interesting, interesting choice of, of, of storytelling means. What did you think about the music? Um... <laughs> I, I, to be honest, that like again, I watched I watched this film once and 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 then a bit, mm-hmm. and as I said, I found it quite a little bit tiring on some levels, cause, just because there's so much going on. Right. Um. Mm. Cause I thought it, like this, as you said, like a lot of this film feels like a fairy tale. Yeah. And the music kind of has this like light, mm-hmm. adventurous style to it in a lot of places, mm-hmm. and really overly dramatic in some places like intentionally overly dramatic because even though this is kind of like a semi-realistic movies this is set in the Wes Anderson universe where it's not the real world right and things don't feel real things feel kind of like story book-esque mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so then the music kind of matches that reinforces that yeah I can go for that <laughs> <laughs> any final thoughts Final thoughts on the audio sounds. Um, there was one scene which I found like really did use that, where you remember they're, they're escaping, yeah, from the uh, from the from the prison. They're right. imprisoned, um, and the the camera only shows their face whilst you can hear a shooting and scuffling and screaming going on. Right. That, that was it. Was just an interesting use of like, the camera and the sound being. Well, no, you can see you can't see the action which you can hear going yeah. on. Only right at the the very last bit, right where, yeah, he's him and the, the prison officer like stabbed each other. Mm. Yeah, it's surprisingly gory or violent because this film's not a very violent film. The, mm. the tone is isn't it's not like that. It's very light hearted for the most part. Mm. But then there's like certain scenes that are like in the movie, that just feel very abrupt. Right. Well, this is, that was one of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a very memorable scene, right? Mm. So, that, that, yeah, that was, that was a good use of sound. Do, mm. do jokes count as sound? Yeah. It's anything you can hear, I think. 
I thought the comedy was, was very, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. That's very true. I think Ray Fiennes in his perhaps first and I think only comedic role and dude pulls it off. Yeah. Like, I didn't expect that. He's usually a very serious, dramatic actor. And in this, he's just bossing out. Mm. He's a very strange man. <laughs> he'll start reverting into poetry every now and then when he's trying to make a I'll situation. Get, oh, you were talking about his character. I you were talking about Ray Fiennes. <laughs> <laughs> he's very strange. <laughs> well, I don't know. He could be. I don't know. Mm, yeah. That's right. As long as you're not making personal comments, it's fine. Oh, we're not allowed to make personal comments on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's listening. It'd be good if he was. He's always listening. Well, it's very plum, plum. <laughs> Themes? Observation? We, we've kind of talked about it a bit, but any, any yeah. further. Yeah, so again, on that like Wes Anderson universe kind of thing, as you made a comment about the like communist kind of takeover... Like, in the movie, they're not communists. Right. They're not... Fa- well, I guess they're, they're kind of fascist, but... They're, they're, like, slight allusions to, like, real-life events. Right. So, like, this seemingly fascist takeover is very reminiscent of, like, Nazi Germany, perhaps. Yeah. But they're not the Nazis. Yeah. So there's a lot of these, like, kind of real-world allusions that you can make, but it's not. Mm. And it's, like, kind of set in... Some kind of Eastern European... Is it Eastern European? Maybe, yeah. Middle Place. Europe, Eastern Europe, yeah. But they're all, all the places are made up, and all the names are made up. Yeah, it's like a very exaggerated... I don't know. Mm. <laughs> no, it's true, yeah. It's, yeah. You're not exactly... You can't place it exactly. Yes. And there's... and there's, But that's it. We, we, we paused it at the very beginning, and, there, and we looked at one of the newspaper newspaper clippings front pages with zero on the front on character zero and he's and it happened in the film it's such a quick flash you only see it for a second that's true this was the like seventh time I've seen the movie and you pointed it out so I paused it and it was the first time I'd ever read that and it and on the and on the picture, it says that he, he was part of the resistance. Yeah. So he was part of so really he was part of the resistance of the country. Right. That's a big story point. You'd think. Yeah. It's not in the movie until right. Only in this scene. And it, you can you can basically miss it. So that's it. Like the, the fabric of what's going on, like you said, like everything that, that's there has been put there for a reason. Mm. Even if that reason is for you to not necessarily be able to <laughs> catch what's going on. Maybe he intended for us to pause it when we eventually bought the Blu-ray or DVD of the movie. Indeed. But when you're in the cinema, you were screwed, basically. Probably, yeah. Unless you took your phone out at the right scene. (laughs) (laughs) Took picture. It would have been bigger. Would that have been easier to catch? But it was so quick. Yeah. But every frame is packed Mm. with like so much information, Mm. whether it's visual or or thematic, and yet. I think it's a, it's a very Wes Anderson trope. Right. Right. But yeah, great, <laughs> great movie. Oh, okay, so thoughts out of 10? Thoughts out of 10, indeed. Marks out of 10? <laughs> Marks out of 10, okay. Um, oh, it's like, it's How like, many thoughts did you have after? <laughs> I tried. I tried my best. I didn't get many. Uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's a difficult one to judge, but I, yeah, eight or nine, eight or nine. Okay. It could be high. I don't know. That's the thing. I haven't watched it enough times. How about you? Um, maybe a nine point five. Mm. It is easily my favorite Wes Anderson film. Right. In face, one of my favorite films. Mm. It's and it's one of those. You, I know you said it was tiring to watch, and I get that, but I've, I, it's one of those films I can just see again and again. And I, I don't, I don't really get bored. Mm. Like I, can't, I recently watched it twice in a week, and it's it's like a two hour movie. Right. It's quite it's quite long, yeah. But I mean, I think that shows the depth of it. But the, the mm. problem is, that's why I watch it once. Right. It's hard to judge a little bit. True. True. But yeah, no, very good, very good film. Yeah. Okay. So that's the tip. Yeah. So that'll be it then. One masterpiece, two not masterpieces. <laughs> no, that's not true. One classic as well. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Outro music. Can <laughs> do the outro music.